Welcome to the 292nd episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Jenna Glass, author of the new novel, Queen of the Unwanted. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Jenna Glass, author of the new novel, Women's War, Queen of the Unwanted. Jenna, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your new novel, Queen of the Unwanted yet, how would you describe the novel? Uh, It's the second book in the Women's War series, and the premise of the Women's War is in a patriarchal society. Uh, women have cast a spell that allows them to control their own reproduction. So they can't be forced to get pregnant or give birth. And it changes a lot of the social dynamics throughout all the different kingdoms. And book two is uh, the third of the three big kingdoms uh, that is that was not really introduced in the, the first book very much has sort of set off on a quest to undo what they call the curse, which allows women to have power. And of course, there are others who are equally determined not to let that happen. And do you remember the original idea that led you to write The Women's War and now the second book, Queen of the Unwanted? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the, the first germ of the idea happened years ago when that guy, Todd Aiken, made the comment about how women who were legitimately raped couldn't get pregnant. And I had the idea at the time, boy, it'd be interesting to, to write in a fantasy world where that is true, because it's certainly not true in our world. But at the time, uh, I was writing a lot of YA at the time and sort of Uh, not really willing to go into something that overtly political or feminist. So I kind of put it on the back burner and just left it there. And then, of course, in 2016, Trump got elected. And I was filled with despair and uh, not a small amount of fear for what was going to happen to women's rights with him at the helm. And the way I dealt with some of that anxiety was to start developing a world where women can't be forced to have children. And it started out kind of as a project that was just for me. It was therapeutic. I was telling myself, "Eh, I don't have to worry about whether this will sell or not. I'm just going to write what I want to write and let all that other stuff go. And it took off for me. It became an obsession, and uh, I I sort of fell in love with writing again, and that's how it turned into a trilogy. And so what were you writing at the time? Um, uh, Because I think this was your first epic fantasy. What what types of books were you writing um, when you you started working on The Women's War? The the last couple of series I had written were YA. Uh, One was a... uh, dystopian YA, and one was a YA horror. And I think I was somewhat burned out on writing YA at that point. I had also tried to do some self-publishing in genres that were not really what I loved, but just everyone was doing it, so I felt like I had to try it, and I wasn't loving it. 
So I was kind of burning myself out on a couple of things. And in some ways, this all happened at the right time for me because I would be between projects. I had nothing under contract. And I didn't know what I was going to work on next, except that I was probably going to stop with the YA, at least for the moment. And so that's uh, how epic fantasy fit in there. And it it used to be one of my big loves when I was younger. I read, read a lot of epic fantasy when I was in college, which was quite a long time ago now. So it, it was not completely new and unfamiliar to me. It just I hadn't done it in a long time. And I certainly never published anything. And what was the reception when when your um, you or your agent started submitting the women's war? Uh, it was like nothing I'd ever had before. Uh, <laughs> the enthusiasm for it w- was a great deal more than for my other books. Uh, it seemed like it was kind of the right idea at the right time. There, there were a lot of people who had many concerns about what would happen for women's rights. And I think in some way also because this book was such a book of my heart that it was the, the fact that I was not restricting myself on what I thought was marketable or not. I think all of that helped to make it a better and more absorbing book than most of what I'd written before, even though I still love my other books. Right. There was just something about this one that was more personal and uh, it certainly excited a lot of people which was very nice. And so how did you um, decide? I mean, I think you talked about this a little bit earlier, but how did you decide on the the gendered magic system that you write about in the women's war? Right. So in the, in the women's war, magic is uh, created using elements that are sort of seen in a different plane. So you open your mind's eye and you see these different elements and you can put them together kind of like a formula or a recipe to make a magic spell. And I'm not even sure exactly how this idea came to me, but when I was sort of developing the idea, I thought about, well, what if men and women see different elements? And then that led to creating a gendered magic system where there are three genders of magic elements. They're male, female, and neuter. And you know, anybody can see the neuter ones, but only women can see female elements and only men can see male elements, which means they have different magic they can cast. And then I also figured in a patriarchal society, they would decide that the men's magic was the, the good stuff and the women's magic was that small, not very powerful, not that useful, and also kind of forbidden and dirty. And I really don't know where that came from. It sort of popped into my head and I fell in love with it when it did. And so what were your earliest memories of reading in books? Whoa. I, I was always a reader. Uh, I can't even remember what. It, the earliest memories I have are sort of the middle grade era of book reading. Yeah, I was kind of a, a loner as a kid, a small kid. I was I, I was a, a victim of a lot of bullying in my school, and home life wasn't necessarily so great either. So books were where I went to feel safe and uh, interested and engaged. So I read voraciously even as a child, and I was you know reading stuff that was above my head, uh, not necessarily getting all I could out of it. 
but I enjoyed reading things that were supposedly above my grade level. Um, but still, I enjoyed things like the, A Little Princess by Frances Hodgson Burnett was one of my favorite books. Um, and then there was The Wolves of Willoughby Chase by Joan Aiken. These were both historical settings, so I think I liked that historical setting even back then, which is, you know, a good background for writing epic fantasy, since usually it is set in something that is at least pseudo-historic. And so so what was the path to publication for you for publishing your first novel? <laughs> <laughs> my first novel. Funny you should mention it. Uh, my, my first novel was actually the 18th novel I wrote over the course of about 16 years of trying to get published. Uh, I had, even for the very first novel I submitted, I got some personalized rejections, including someone saying, oh, I wish I could buy this, but... And so for 16 years, I kept getting rejections of that sort. We would buy this, except we're having to cut back on first novels, or, or we just purchased something similar to this. So it was this constant, close but not quite. And I think most even semi-normal people would have quit somewhere along the way or at least thought about quitting. Maybe when you get into double digits, you might think, yeah, this isn't really for me. But it was too much a part of me, the writing and the reading, uh, for me to give up on it. And so, what, what, were the, what were those novels? What were the genre or type of novel that you were writing, these 18 novels? The first eight or, I think it's about eight, were uh, either science fiction or fantasy, sort of the traditional uh, genre, center of the genre back then. Because mm -hmm. that's what I loved reading, and I sort of had this mindset that that was what I, the only thing I could write. When I started thinking about writing anything other than those, I, even though I read widely, I thought, no, I can't do that. This is what I write. And then in 2003, I went to this incredible workshop, this really intensive workshop for people just like me who are close but not quite, uh, with Dean Wesley Smith and Christine Catherine Rush. Mm -hmm. And it was amazingly intensive. I, I forget exactly what the n amount of word count was, but we wrote like, 25,000, 30,000 words in two weeks. It might have been even more than that with lots of critique and also lots of learning about the industry and learning about other genres. And one of the, the rallying cries of this workshop was dare to be bad, which meant, you know, do things that you might not be good at. And find out if you're good at it and if you love it. Because nothing bad is going to happen if you sit down and write a novel and it's not good. You know, the world is not going to end, but you will learn something through the process. So I broke out of in this little box I had put myself in and I started writing other genres. I especially worked a lot on romance. I also tried writing a mystery, though that one was a lot harder for me. Um, I just, you know... It opened my mind to a lot of other possibilities, and I think it just freed me from the the tropes I was married to as a 
I'm a fantasy and science fiction writer, and that's all I can do. And even though I eventually went back to science fiction and fantasy, that opening of my mind, I think, really helped me. And the other thing that really helped me was during that uh, very intensive two weeks, we had about eight hours of classwork a day, and then we also had homework assignments, including critiquing other people's work. Plus, we had to write our own work, and like I said, we wrote like 30,000 words or some huge amount. And at the very end, the, the instructor said to us, okay, tell us again how you don't have time to write. And we all kind of looked at each other and we added up how much time we'd spent in class, which is you know equivalent to our day jobs, and how much time we'd spent on the assignments, which is kind of equivalent to the time we'd spend in our family life, and realized, you know, if we really wanted to, we can actually write a lot more than we thought we could. And for me, that was an eye-opener to think that that I could actually find a way to write if I wanted to badly enough. Because at that time I had a day job at, as a technical writer at a software company, and I thought, you know, by the time I get home from that, I just don't feel like writing anymore. And so afterwards I realized, well, if I don't feel like writing after work, maybe I'll just bite the bullet and get up before work to do some writing and actually get it done. And that was really helpful for me too. I think even upping my production was helpful to learning the craft better, getting more comfortable with it, and letting go of some of my inner critic. So it was a it was a really transformative uh, experience for me. And did you go to any of their other workshops? I did. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly what those workshops were. Definitely another short story one I went to. Right. Uh, and and so what was that 18th novel that you finally um, uh, found publication for? That one was uh, Watchers in the Night, which is a paranormal romance with vampires. This was around the time that you know, vampires were the big thing. And sort of this new, darker romance was starting to, well, in the midst of that phase. And so it was kind of the right book at the right time. So while it was a romance, it was also very strongly a paranormal fantasy, urban fantasy type setting. And uh, so it was a little bit of both of my worlds, of the, the romance and the, the fantasy. And so looking back, do you think that you were learning something with each of those 18 unpublished novels that you wrote? Absolutely. Even though I didn't always realize that I was learning it but yeah just like you absorb a lot from reading you you internalize a lot of the ways stories work and especially the way stories work for you because we all have very different tastes but you also do some of that by writing you know how to book flights and hotels all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive that's why you need Viator Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place. 
to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And by writing more and learning more about what feels right for you, and also learning how to not silence the inner critic, because that's impossible, but how to work through the inner critic. And that, I mean, that's the reason that the, the first eight novels I wrote was like, yeah, that was over, you know, 14 of those years. And then the next, the next eight or nine were, you know, two or three years because the, the first ones, I had to fight that inner critic so much uh, that I didn't really produce very much because it was really unpleasant a lot of the times sitting down writing and thinking, oh, this is terrible. This is terrible. And, and I'm now, curious, I mean, it, when you were saying it was terrible, I don't mean to interrupt you. Um, no I was just going to ask, when you were saying that it was terrible, um, do you feel like you were, you know, given the amount that you read and your knowledge of, of the genre, that you were comparing it to what's been published and you felt like you weren't adding up? Is that what the 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 um, inner critic was telling you? It's not that so much as, I mean... All writers have to deal with this. Even the most successful writer out there, if they're being honest, they will tell you that while they're writing, especially first drafts, there is always a voice that is saying, this is not good, this is not good, this is not good. And often that voice is wrong. One of the really interesting uh, exercises we had at that workshop, the two-week workshop, is we were asked to bring in from the start three short stories one that we thought was one of our best, one that we thought was not very good, and one that was kind of mediocre. And we submitted them all anonymously. And the, the big pro- class project for the end was we would each go through this slush pile of all these stories that are anonymous, and we would create an anthology from the stories that we thought were best. And what most of us discovered was that the story we put in that we thought was not very good got picked for an anthology exactly as often as the one that we thought was best. And it was this sort of aha moment that we don't really see our own work clearly. And so that was part of what made it easier to write later, is realizing even when this voice is saying this is terrible, I know that voice is actually not to be trusted because I don't see my own work clearly, especially not while I'm that close to it. Years later, I might look at it and say, oh, that was actually pretty good. But while I'm working on it, 
you know, I see all the moving parts and all the mistakes, and I don't see the whole story. And that's what was going on for, you know, those first few books. Because they were getting very close to getting published. They really weren't that bad. I would probably think they were bad now just because I'm, you know, in such a different place. But I think they were, many of them were actually publishable if I happened to be in the right place in the right time. And so, so what tips or tricks did you figure out for yourself to silence that inner critic where you said you went from um, like eight novels, I think you said in like 12 years to, to yeah. a bunch and uh, a bunch of novels in three or four years? What, what, what were you able to figure out for yourself to help you silence that critic to get the work done? One of the things I did is I, I took that slogan, Dare to be Bad, and I made a little poster of it, and I framed it, and I put it up right over my workstation so that every time I started seizing up, I looked at it and thought, okay, let me just write something that's bad and not worry about it. And that would often get me over the hump. Uh, the other thing was part of having that greater output was I had less writing on each individual book. Like I, I could say, okay, this is one of 17 novels instead of this is one of the three novels I'm trying to get sold and, you know, so much is writing on this one novel. And that, in a way, helped where it didn't feel so uh, of such earth-shattering importance that I get this one right, right this moment. And the other thing is just thinking constantly, and I still do this, fix it later. Get it down now, fix it later. And I will sometimes even say that to myself out loud as I'm struggling with the scene. And, you know, often when you're coming back to it later, you're coming back to it with, you know, the, the story is now complete and you know more about all your characters and your setting and you understand it better and you know your themes. And some, somehow the scene that was giving you so much trouble on the first draft just flows out much better. And it wouldn't have happened if you sat there and tried to get it right the first time because you don't know enough yet. So you mentioned earlier that The Women's War is a trilogy. Uh, what was your writing process in terms of planning the trilogy? Did you have a short synopsis in terms of the overarching plot? Um, because obviously um, the first book uh, was published um, while I'm assuming that you were still working on the second book. So I just wondered for, for yourself, um, what was that process like so that you... Um, didn't I guess so you didn't write yourself into a hole and, and not know where the third book was going to end up? That, that's actually really tricky, especially with these books, because they're very long and very involved. It's kind of the, the farther you look into the future, the less clear anything you see is. Um, because if you lock yourself down when you're working on book one, and then you get to book three, and you're like, oh, I don't like this anymore. That, that's very difficult. So I had, when I sold book one, I had a, a general outline of book two and basically a short like cover blurb version of book three. Uh, I stuck somewhat to what I had planned for book two, but book three wandered off pretty far from what I was originally 
planning, but that's kind of how it has to be because you don't know until you actually get into the guts of it what is going to be right. And so the image of what's coming gets refined the farther along you go. And eventually uh, it settles down and you can actually plot the third book without getting overwhelmed. Because that's one of the that's another one of those things that can get me stuck when I begin a book is the sort of overwhelmingness of the story. Like it's so big, there's so much, I, I can't encompass it all at once. So I try to think, okay, I know some you know spots here and there in the future that that I can use. Uh, but I won't try to flesh out too much now or I will get stuck sitting here thinking about all the intricate details of the plot and then I'll start writing it and realize something doesn't work and it's suddenly destroyed everything that comes afterward. So it's kind of, in some ways, I'm not planning too far ahead because if I plan too far ahead, that's more likely to get me into a, a corner than if I leave some flexibility, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah, that, it, it definitely makes sense. Um, so um, I guess you could say like a loose outline. Um, yes. Yes. Um, so have you have you thought yet about your writing plans beyond the women's war? Do you think you will s try to stick with epic fantasy or what's your thoughts or are you just not thinking about that yet? I'm mostly not thinking about it, although in the back of my head, I'm thinking I do want to give another try to epic fantasy now that, you know, now that, now that I've done this one and I realize one of the things I enjoyed most about writing The Women's War was the world building. It was so fun to build a world from scratch because I come from writing a lot of contemporary set or at least near contemporary settings where I sort of had to stick to the rules of our world. And the freedom to make up the rules and to make up the clothing styles, the you know the, the architecture, the geography, all that stuff was actually, even though it was very challenging, it was a lot of fun. And I'm like, I think I want to try to do that again, even though it's a daunting task. I don't have any idea what kind of fantasy I would write yet, except that it would almost certainly be something feminist. Uh, but I have it in the back of my mind that after I get the edits for book three and I'm finished with all of that, I might explore another epic fantasy. So you mentioned earlier this uh, slogan, Dare to be Bad, that you have next to your desk. Are there any other writing, <laughs> writing rituals that you use when you sit down to write? Um, I don't know whether it's a ritual, but... We'll say that my writing computer has almost nothing else installed on it. And certainly the computer that I sit down to write on, you know, I don't do email. I don't do anything on the Internet. It is a dedicated to writing computer and you know, chair and desk. That's the only thing I do when I'm here, except for this, this time I'm doing an interview. But that's still writing-ish. And that sort of helps put me in the writing frame of mind. Although sometimes when I get really stuck, I will actually change up the location just to try to get myself unstuck. 
Yeah. The other ritual is I must have my cup of coffee. <laughs> uh, even when it's too much caffeine, so you know, drink some decaf. There's there's something about writing that just necessitates coffee. Other That's than great. that, it's, it's pretty loose. So what advice would you offer for listeners who are writing their own stories and novels and hoping to get published? Well, the first one would be adopt the dare to be bad concept. And I especially think that's important for people who have trouble finishing a novel. Because I think for people who are just starting, one of the number one things that stops them from finishing the novel is they start thinking, ah, this isn't any good. And I think you have to, even if you don't think it's any good, fight your way past that and finish the novel. Tell yourself. I'm going to write a bad novel, and I'm just going to do it. Because there is something about finishing that first novel that makes it so much easier to finish the second one and the third and the fourth. So finish, no matter how bad you think it is. Finish. Uh, the other thing I would say is read a lot, and don't just read in your genre, because you will subconsciously absorb a lot from other other books and Again, figure out what works for you versus necessarily what works for other people. Um, I had another one and it has now left my brain. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm the living embodiment of don't give up. If, if you love doing it, if you hating every moment of it, then think about giving up if you aren't getting success. But if you love it, keep doing it. Keep growing. Keep writing new books. It doesn't mean, you know, rewrite the same book over and over again. Keep writing more. And if you keep at it long enough, you will probably publish something. <laughs> but it might be really hard. And it, it is the emotional toll it takes to get all those rejections. I, I can't describe how hard that was when I wanted it so badly. But I eventually got that first book published and now I have 23 books out <laughs> so you know I, I more published than not and that's all because I kept at it and would not take no for an answer without actually you know being obnoxious about it and trying to rewrite the same thing and insisting that this particular book must be published and do you have a sense of what kept you going? I mean, that's that's a long time and a lot of writing, and as you said, a lot of rejection to go through. For me, it was just the love of it. Uh, I loved reading. Uh, when I was a kid, reading was my lifeline, and writing was very much like that. I, I loved it too much to give up. I actually never considered giving up. I was always thinking, you know, eventually I'm going to have to think about giving up, but I'm not there yet. Uh, I, and I can't, maybe that was just you know, total stubbornness on my part, <laughs> refusal to take a hint. But I just loved it too much to quit. And I still do. You know, even if, even if my publishing career ends, I will keep writing because it is something that is a part of me. It's so important to me. And but I think my publishing career does not end. <laughs> and I'm curious, once you had that 18th book published, did you ever go back and try to sell the, the previous 17, or did you just put those away and focus on the ones ahead? I 
mostly I just put them away. Some of them I kind of took pieces of them and wrote again uh, in in totally different forms. Like uh, the second YA trilogy I wrote, uh, the Replica trilogy, was actually based on an adult book that I had written during that uh, period of time when I was not selling. It's a book I really loved, but I... I had grown so much and changed so much that I didn't feel like redoing it or redoing the exact book, but taking some of the ideas from it and going a totally different direction with it. Uh, I did that and I've taken little pieces of, you know, kernels of ideas from some of those previous books and we redone them in different ways. But yeah, my style and my voice have changed so much since then. And even by the time I started selling, it had changed so much that, I preferred to move forward than to look at the, the previous books. Gotcha. So what books have you read recently, fiction or nonfiction, that you would recommend that kind of made an impression on you? Uh, I've been in a lot of a rereading uh, stage lately, which I think is true of a lot of people right now. Um, so what, I, what I've been rereading lately is the uh, Inheritance Trilogy by M.K. Jemison. And I'm really loving that the second time through. Uh, it's epic fantasy uh, with you know gods and mortals and lots of convoluted political storylines, which are the kinds of things I love, as you can tell from the Limits War. But so that's really what I'm on right now. I also sometimes am where I'm reading. My, my husband reads a lot of thrillers and mysteries, so I often read books that he's bought but they don't make a really strong impression on me. So even though I know I've read them, I don't remember them as well as other books. So I, I can't just come up with the titles. Sure. <laughs> so where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your books? They can find me online on my website, which is com. I am also on Twitter under my old pen name of Jenna Black. I was on Twitter so long that I was actually able to get my name with no fancy characters or numbers or anything. And I'm also on Instagram as Jenna Black Books. Although most of my Instagram, I'm, I'm also an artist on the side. So most of my Instagram is pictures of my artwork with you know the occasional mentions of my books. But if you like uh, colorful, uh, abstract artwork, you, you might enjoy my Instagram. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Jenna Glass, author of the second women's war novel, Queen of the Unwanted, that was has just been published. Go buy a copy of the novel now. And Jenna, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you very much for having me. Great. Thanks. That was great. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen to audiobooks during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Reading and Writing Podcast Special Offer. Get two audiobooks for the price of one with your first month of membership with code RWPODCAST. That's code RWPODCAST for two audiobooks for the price of one for your first month of membership at Libro.fm.